I mean, the the cliche is if you're not the paying customer, then you're the product. And there's a lot of truth in that. Today, we are really excited to be able to be joined by our favorite teacher, Mr. Baumgarten. Welcome to the podcast. Good afternoon. Firstly, would you like to tell everyone a bit about yourself, first of all? Sure. Well, my name is uh, Paul Baumgarten. Uh, I am the computer science teacher here at Sha Tin College in Hong Kong. I've been here almost two years now. Uh, before that, I was computer science teacher at the International School of Lausanne in Switzerland for four years, uh, where I also taught uh, diploma, and uh, they were NYP all the way through. And prior to that, I taught in Australia for a bit over 10 years, um, teaching to the Australian curriculum system. Wow, that's actually quite a few countries. I think the question would be, given that you've lived in Europe and Switzerland, why did you come to Hong Kong? And Shatin College in particular? Uh, well, Shatin was the one that was advertising. Um, <laughs> and I didn't realize it was kind of so far out of the way of the island when I, uh, when I applied. But no, seriously, Hong Kong... Um, yeah, Hong Kong is, is one of those places that is kind of on the expat radar that a lot of expats... Um, love the idea of, of living and working at and I haven't been here for a while now I can see why you know I had plenty of friends at ISL who raved about their time in Hong Kong and having done four years in Europe and I used my holidays there to travel around uh, different parts of Europe I thought Hong Kong would be a great base from which I could travel around different parts of Asia not that that's happened much the past year but um, yeah um, so experience different culture, different lifestyle, uh, travel to different places. Um, it has the added benefit of also being, um, since uh, I grew up in Australia, it's closer to home um, and same time zone as home as well. So it kind of makes it a bit easier to stay in touch with the family. Yeah, that actually sounds pretty reasonable. Well, I think my question would be, why did you choose teaching over some regular programming job or some remote job or just basically start a startup? Um, I've never entirely ruled it out, to be honest. Um, so I, I did do some uh, programming work for a little while uh, prior to teaching. Uh, I, I worked as an IT in, uh, infrastructure and network manager for a little while and did some, did some programming as part of that and also some freelance programming on the side. Uh, topped up my income with a little bit of extra programming. Um, and yeah, I've kind of... I kind of always feel myself getting pulled between the two, uh, the, the two fields, I guess, uh, of education and computer science in that regard, because, yeah, I'm, I'm, I enjoy computer science. I'm passionate about it, and I've toyed around with the idea of, you know, uh, taking a year of leave and you know go live in in some cheap village somewhere for a year while I just code away and, and, you know, and start a startup or something like that. And um, yeah, I mean, to be honest, if I came across an idea that uh, excited me enough, I wouldn't rule it out. So yeah, as I say, programmers have a really big benefit in society for being able to systematically think about how to solve any problems or ideas they have and just 
uh, build it because a lot of uh, founders often struggle with finding a technical founder and being a programmer just makes it a lot, lot easier. Absolutely. So obviously we all know your ability as a computer science teacher and programming as well. But how did you actually get into computer science in the first place and realize your ability and passion for programming? Uh, well, I guess my first experience with a computer would have been when I was around 11 or 12. My, my dad brought home, I don't even know what the make and model of that thing would have been, some really old beast of a computer from his <laughs> office. Uh, and it had basic on it. Uh, and I just, I just read through the manual and I was just tinkering with playing some basic, you know, just simple go-to commands and stuff like that. Um, and my primary school would have, they had some Commodore 64s um, and that also had basic on it. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know. I just, I was just gravitated to it. I mean, like when I was a kid, I was, when I was in kindergarten, I disassembled a wrote an old rotary phone and pull, you know just pulled it apart to see how it worked. Um, my kindergarten teacher said I was going to be an engineer as a result. Um, when I was when I was seven, oh, you guys are just going to get me share stories, aren't you? When I was seven, um, so my parents had this old like four car garage and. My dad was a bit of a hoarder. It was full of junk. And one Saturday morning, I, I was, my parents were, were still in bed uh, and us, us kids were all up and so we were playing in the backyard. I was in the garage and I climbed up on top of some furniture, uh, so on top of this like six-foot cupboard or something, uh, and unscrewed this light bulb that was hanging down from the ceiling to see how it worked. I said, I, and ended up giving myself a, a nasty electric shock um, and got rushed off to hospital and spent, spent a couple of nights in hospital. Um, I think I was about seven at the time. But yeah, so I, I guess moral of the story is I've always been interested in how things work. And so that's kind of, yeah, shaped the path that I've taken. So. Yeah, but that, that, that is a really funny story. Is that why you sort of... Um, sort of migrated to programming as opposed to doing the, the hardware stuff because of that incident. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, to be honest, I, I don't know how, I don't know why I kind of ended up exactly in software versus hardware. Um, when I was finishing high school and looking at university applications, uh, it, was, it was almost a, almost a coin toss between applying to university for computer science or applying for physics. Um, so I think it was partly shaped by what I was studying at school at the time. Um, so physics was my favorite subject and, you know, I, was, uh, I really enjoyed my maths. I didn't get to do computer science in high school myself, um, but I had bought my own computer and was doing a fair bit of programming on the side at the time then. Um, and we didn't have stuff like Arduinos or Raspberry Pis back then. So I guess the avenue for, you know, unless I was going to do like metal workshop or stuff like that, the avenue to kind of tinker with hardware, um, those opportunities weren't, weren't the same then as they are now. Um, cert certainly at that kind of hobbyist consumer level. So um, if they had been around, yeah, then, you know, who knows um, what path I might have taken. Yeah, because often people complain how 
studying and learning about computer science is very, very different to working at an actual software company. What, what do you think about that? Should we change the syllabus to cater the, the technologies coming every year? Uh, I think the, well, there's a couple of points to that. There's, because computer science as a discipline is more than just programming. Computer science came out of mathematics and there's, it, there's all the, it's the idea of looking into algorithms and data structures and how to creatively and logically solve problems and, and figure out the most efficient solutions to those problems. And so there's this, there's this body of knowledge and expertise that is kind of completely separate to programming skill. Um, and so it's the, the, what you learn from a computer science degree, I guess, is, is a lot broader and richer than just programming skills. And if programming skills is all you're interested in, then you can go to a, you know, a two-month boot camp or something like that and you can get those core programming skills that would, you know, that would get you just a, you know, a coding job. Um, but computers, the idea of computer science is intended to be much richer than that and it's more than just knowing how to pump out code um, but be, having that deeper understanding of how systems work um, so that you can, you know, you can also design and produce innovative you know, new um, complex systems uh, that a simple code cutter who's gone to a boot camp wouldn't be able to do. Um, so, I mean, I, I guess from a career point of view, I'd like to think that that means the computer scientists end up, you know, becoming the managers and the, the business leaders, uh, you know, the analysis, analysts and all that rather than, um, rather than just being a code monkey. So. <laughs> Yeah, that, that's quite interesting to hear about because often when you talk to people about what is programming, they, they honestly have no clue. Um, how would you explain like, to a five-year-old what necessarily programming is in the first place? A way of speaking to a computer to make it do what you want it to do, mm. I guess. Yeah, because when we just talked, when we talked, like told a few friends we took computer science before of a sort of this course, they just said, oh, programming is about building apps. Well, we just basically tell them programming not necessarily is about um, all the, the graphics, the, how, how nice an app looks, but it's rather the, the logic behind it. And what do you think the future, future of programming is? Well, uh, programming or computer science, I guess, it would, would be, um, to, to clarify your question. Um, um, perhaps technologies, languages that, would guide the, the future of the web or yeah. um, iOS, Android? Yeah. Um, I mean, certainly mobile technologies have, have revolutionized a lot, um, mainly through the miniaturization that they've brought in of hardware and the fact that now everyone is carrying a, com a computer in their pocket that is always on and always on the, ne the network. Uh, and the miniaturization of all the sensors and, and all that kind of thing has had then fringe benefits, you know, such as what hobbyists are able to do with their Arduino projects and, and stuff like that. Um, I suspect that part of innovation has probably reached a point of plateau for a little while. Um, 
obviously there is massive industry investment happening in artificial intelligence and all of its subdomains. Uh, and I think that, yeah, that that's still only scratching the surface of where it could go. So certainly once you start combining artificial intelligence with the miniaturization of hardware, yeah, um, then that also opens up exciting possibilities in robotics and everything else. Um, yeah, I think in terms of where the big tech companies are, if you look at where they, they are spending their money, they're betting on AI at the moment. Um, and so I said, I think that certainly for the next decade, that that's what, what's going to shape uh, change and growth avenues in the industry. Um, after that, who knows? I mean, things like VR kind of get hyped up and then die down again. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm not quite convinced on, on that being the next big thing yet. Um, but yeah, certainly AI has, has quite a, quite a while yet to run. Yeah. You've mentioned VR. So what is your view anyway on virtual reality? At the moment, it's a good fun gaming platform. Uh, I know the school is certainly looking at getting some sets for its possibilities for education, you know, being able to do virtual, you know, field trips and, you know, or um, go into, you know, Im imaginary places that just, you know, are not possible in reality or, um, you know, dissect a virtual human body, you know, in biology class or something like that or, you know, all of those kinds of things. Um, but, yeah, in terms of a practical day-to-day -day real world, you know, everyone hooked into VR kind of, we're a long way from anything like that. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Definitely. Um, this kind of correlates to when I heard a podcast about what Elon Musk is doing on brain uh, brain implants and being able to sort of communicate. There's there's basically no there's no need to talk with people, but rather it's just signals sent over. Do you think there's a point where like technology and computers can go too far into? Yeah, I, I don't know if I'm showing my age with that one but i would be quite reluctant to get a brain implant to be able to wirelessly silently communicate with people or access the the internet or whatever um partly like one of the biggest issues would be trust you know the level of absolute trust you would have to have both now and for the rest of your life in whatever organization was behind that piece of tech. Um, at the moment, the amount of data harvesting that happens, you know, the, and the, the poor privacy record of big tech companies um, with personal information and how they're just data mining you for everything already. The last thing, I'm not going to hook Google or Facebook or any of them into my brainwave patterns. So, yeah, I mean, like I said, I might be showing my age a little bit there and be less inclined to, to jump at that, but certainly at, at the moment I can't imagine a, a situation where I'd be signing up for it. I mean, if I had to be completely honest, I think I would agree with you on that. Mm. 
Yeah. Yeah. Because, for example, like Cambridge Analytica or other political data scandals, it's it's just too common nowadays. Now that big tech companies have all these um, control over uh, what what people know, like your feed on Facebook or your feed on Instagram. Well, I know there there recently quite a few Congress hearings in the U.S. for a Sunder Pichai of Google, Mark Zuckerberg. What do you think the the government or people in general should do to ensure that we don't fall into the trap under the hands of big tech companies? Yeah, I, th I think there, there's certainly a bit of a reset that's needed. The, the problem with the big tech companies is their business model in terms of how they generate their, their revenue because they're in, so advertising-centric with everything. And so they have to they have to be harvesting that information and collecting patterns on their users to be able to generate the advertising revenue that then pays for everything. Um, if we had our time again, finding a way to establish an internet where it was more of a user pays model would then incentivize the companies to be looking after the privacy of the, their individual users and would mitigate against the need to be harvesting and tracking and combining all information from all the different users and pooling it all together. The incentive would be the other way around. Having gone so far down the path that we have already where everyone is used to getting Facebook for free, Instagram for free, WhatsApp for free, Google Docs for free, you know, kind of rolling it back and, and now then asking everyone to pay, I don't know, $30 a year for an Instagram subscription or something like that. I, yeah, I don't know that we're going to be able to put the genie back in the bottle, um, certainly not very easily. Um, I suspect what places like the US government are likely to do is uh, you know, maybe split a couple of the companies up, which might you know might be a temporary solution for a little while but you'll just you'll find yourself in the same kind of situation where one rises to the top of the pile again and and if yeah find yourself back at the same place again but um yeah it's a tough one yeah that's actually really interesting you brought up how um people should pay for being able to use these services like if if the internet were to reset and start from the beginning you would basically say oh, in order to use a service, we should pay the company or a subscription fee rather than having um, Instagram, Facebook just free to download because... I mean, yeah. you know, if, if the, I had the option with those companies to pay $30 a year and know that that meant my privacy was guaranteed, and then I would do it, absolutely. So... Because I think social media, the main reason they want you to post content out there it's just to kind of sell your information in a way to companies who um, may specialize in what you're interested in. For example, obviously, you may see a lot of personalized ads in these websites, especially, you know, Instagram and Facebook. So what's your view on yeah, that? Yeah, I mean, the, the cliche is if you're not the paying customer, then you're the product. Yeah, and there's a lot of truth in that. So, um, yeah, the, the paying customers are the advertising companies. And the billions of people using those tools, they are the, they are the product. So, 
yeah, if, if we had to reset and say we had to pay for Instagram, do you think Instagram would still grow as big as it, as it is currently or would there be like a complete different approach in society? Well, I mean, if, if every tech company was taking the same approach, then you'd still end up at the same place in the sense that the, the company with the best product w- would be the one that gets the market share um, as opposed to, you know, yeah, so you'd have to be consistent with it. You, you couldn't have some companies b- being user pays where others are giving their product away for free because then obviously everyone just gravitates to the free one and, and that, you know, and then you end up with the same problem. How, how does the free one pay for their business costs? So, yeah, it, it's, the, um, it's, it's the income generating problem. And it, a lot, so many startups today face the same situation, you know, to, to try and establish a user base, they give their product away for free and then end up falling back into that same trap of, you know, um, trying to make money by plastering adverts all over their app screens. So. Yeah, I think advertisements are a really big problem. I think social think, media is quite interesting. You know, we're going to dive into an episode on social media, social media. and mm-hmm. our podcast. So, yeah, keep, uh, well, we'll post that. Stay tuned. Um, now that COVID-19 has been less of an issue in Hong Kong, um, we're slowly transitioning out of remote learning and work. But what do you think the future of that is? <sighs> Oh, you just made me think of our VR discussion. Could you imagine if instead of Zoom, everyone was donating VR headsets and we were in a virtual classroom together or something? I'd be in for that. With your own, uh, you know, your own personally created avatar instead of instead of having to be your own likeness or something. <laughs> um, yeah, to be honest, if I never have to log on to Zoom again in my life, it would be too soon. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, hated I hated online learning. Uh, and I know, yeah, most, most students did as well. Um, just the, uh, the distance of, you know, not being able to, not, you know, just a simple thing of not being able to wander around the room and in 30 seconds I can do a lap of the room and get a, a really good feel of, how that lesson went, how, how many people succeeded with it, how many people was, were stuck, you know, do I need to adjust what I'm planning to do next lesson? Um, you, you just can't get that same feedback when you're looking at 30 black icons on a screen. Yeah, I think also um, as students, I think we feel the same way as well. We feel a bit disjointed from teachers when we're, you know, especially for us when we're in a core part of our uh, learning, obviously, and it's good to be back in class, obviously, with our exams. And you don't corner. become a teacher to just you know, to just distantly lecture to students, you know, um, the relational aspect, getting to know your students is, you know, a big part of the job and being able to, um, to see where they're struggling and to help them out. And, and you just can't do that at every Zoom. Yeah, this, this is kind of interesting because I was listening to another podcast the other day and there is software, I, I, I'm not sure what it's called, but basically allows companies to map out their office on a sort of web app and each sort of worker or, um, or employee at the company would have these icons where they would walk around these virtual offices and be able to walk up to people and press a button and they just start talking to it. I saw that. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, it's quite interesting because 
it sort of lowers the bar barrier when talking to people because on Zoom, you have to go into the breakout room and it's quite high friction. But on the other hand, in real life, you can just walk up to them, say hi to them and start talking. Well, I mean, that relates back to conversations that we've had previously about the lack of a virtual community that happened when, um, when we were shut down. You know, it was... It was just lessons and that, that was it. There wasn't a way for, for students to mix during breaks or anything like that, you know, unless they had each other's contact details on WhatsApp. And, but that's still not the same. You know, you, you, and you can't just play a, a card game or a chess game or something like that easily over, over Zoom. And, yeah. uh, would it be end to, you know, develop something a bit different to Zoom, maybe better than Zoom? <laughs> Uh, well, as you all know, <laughs> um, I, there is a bit of a student-led project kind of bubbling away under the, under the scenes at the moment to try and try and take something like Discord um, and modify it to a school context. Um, so go to heya.space. Yeah, that is H-E-Y-A dot space. I mean, you know, Discord is fantastic. Uh, and, you know, you've, you've got your your text channels, your voice channels, your video channels. Um, I would happily use Discord with my classes if I was allowed. Um, from the school's point of view, I can understand the school's concerns. Um, one of the main ones being with regards to things like the, um, the private messaging side of things and the, the possibility there for cyberbullying or harassment and, and all that side of things. Um, and especially since Discord is such a global open platform um, and there's some, there's some rather, shall we say, school inappropriate content um, that can be relatively easily found on Discord. I mean, the reality is obviously probably the majority of students have a Discord account of their own already anyway. And so if they were inclined to that, you know, to be attracted to that, to that kind of content, they would already be consuming it anyway. But it's, it's, it's a different thing than to have the school endorsing it. So I can, yeah, I can understand the school's reluctance there. We just talked about like sort of data, data scandals or privacy issues. If, for example, we were to have a fully um, chat slash um, messaging platform spe specifically for school, do you think teachers should be, should have the ability to read the messages and just go through spaces or chats they're not part of? Um, yeah, that's, again, that's a bit of a tough one. I guess, like, I mean, from, from my point of view, obviously this particular project that we're talking about, you know, the, the intention is not to replace private student conversation anyway. And so if a student wants to have a private conversation with a student, there's other software tools that they can use to do that um we're not suggesting that students just you know stop using instagram or, or whatsapp and, and that all student online interaction would happen through this um but if i guess it depends on whether it's going to be used just for official school clubs and uh, and groups for things you know like i know the student council is looking at it um, and, you know, I've got some computer science clubs that I would 
you know, switch across to using it or, and stuff like that. So is it going to be just for those kind of official school environments where there's a teacher that would be supervising it anyway? Or do we want it to become something broader, such as, you know, a place for students to chat like a, vir- you know, a vir- as a virtual playground during, you know, recess breaks and stuff like that? Um, and so certainly if it was to turn into that second um, kind of usage, then uh, personally, yeah, I, I think there, there would need to be a way to allow students to just be able to mingle and chat pri- online without teachers that, you know, just snooping on those conversations. Like in the same way here that, you, you know, at recess and lunch times, you, you know, you just gather around a, a table down at the canteen or something like, you know, or in the corner of your tutor class. And, you know, the teacher's not kind of just standing over your shoulder listening into what your conversation is. I, you know, I've got no interest in, in, in listening to that level of student gossip or, you know, let, let you have your own conversations and hang out with your friends by all means. But so I guess it depends on what the, what the end tool, what the, what the end use of the product is and, and how far the, the school decides to take it in that respect. Um, if it's just being used for clubs and extracurricular and stuff, you know, where there would always be a teacher anyway, then, yeah, it makes sense to ha- have teachers, um, you, know, pu- you know, in each chat room. So, yeah, it, it depends on where it goes. But at the same time, I think obviously online there's much more events of you know cyberbullying and of obviously um classmates obviously being uh a bit disrespectful to each other so i think there still could be some sense of mon- um teachers monitoring students but at the same time obviously privacy should be obviously very important yeah and you know maybe it's a case of of having a bit of a think through some of the tools that are built into the software you know maybe some way for a student to report a conversation and in and in that case, a copy of the conversation is archived for a teacher to be able to review or something like that. Um, I don't know. I mean, I'm kind of hoping if COVID kindly goes away uh, and we're on site a lot more, then then it becomes less of a factor because you wouldn't use it for recess breaks and you know that kind of casual student to student hanging out anyway it would mainly become a tool for things like the school clubs. So. Yeah, I think communication plays a big part, especially in this uh, online environment. And yeah, I'm not sure, but I think we should sort of touch on upon sort of the feature of uh, cryptocurrencies or I'm not sure if you heard about NFTs or non-fungible tokens, I believe. They're basically pieces of artwork people are selling online. And um yeah, do you think this is just sixty something million dollars or something? Uh, yeah. yeah. Do you know, have you heard of uh, the influencer Logan Paul and his contribution to this? Yeah, he basically sold around NFTs or Pokemon cards and made I think almost five million US dollars in a very short period of time. Do you think this is just a, a fad, or do you think there's actually potential for things like? Yeah, I was reading an interesting article about where that would go and you know how much of it is just bored rich people with nothing to spend their money on. 
Um, because, I mean, there's nothing of inherent value there. But, I mean, the same could be said about Bitcoin as a whole. I mean, I remember, uh, I think it was the, the last year at uh, ISL when, you know, every lesson, every diploma computer science lesson, the students would be, you know, looking at the current value of the Bitcoin and be speculating about, you know, how much of it they could, they could possibly buy. And, you know, that, that was when Bitcoin just absolutely skyrocketed the first time into, I think, 7,000 USD before it finally crashed, it halved again over the space of a few months. And, and now it's something crazy. Um, yeah, I mean, the, I don't see Bitcoin becoming a viable global currency, you know, certainly not in, in a currency sense. Um, the technology is not, is not capable of that kind of transaction load. Um, so, yeah, the, whilst there is, there's some value and some merit to the idea of a cryptocurrency um, it won't be Bitcoin. It'll be um, it'll be a different technology that would that would serve that purpose. Bitcoin itself is, is really just speculators um, gambling on the, the future price of it at the moment. We've also um, read, obviously, in the article, there's actually been some payments of some famous athletes by cryptocurrency. Um, you don't, uh, I don't think you've heard of. Uh, have you heard of Cristiano Ronaldo? Obviously, mm. the big footballer. He's uh, was actually the first athlete to be paid by cryptocurrency. His uh, wages were actually paid. Yeah, that's quite interesting. Cryptocurrency. Mm -hmm. so I do see a big future for it. Maybe not Bitcoin, though. Yeah, I don't think Bitcoin will necessarily be the end goal, but rather a starting point of cryptocurrencies. Yeah, Bitcoin as a technology, it, its transactions are too slow yeah. mm -hmm. um, and too expensive to run. Yeah, the mine. There's just there's not enough of the currency around. Um, yeah, and and for normal. For normal people to be able to conduct their transactions, you, you need a currency to have much more price stability than Bitcoin has as well. So. Yeah, and I think that the, the act of getting and acquiring buying Bitcoin is quite a complicated one because you first you need a, a secure wallet and then you have mm. to go to some Bitcoin exchange site and then paste in your wallet. The whole process just seems very complicated for the, the average person to use yeah it's kind of like early days of the, of uh e-commerce on the on the internet when people were scared of putting their credit cards into websites and um yeah the being able to purchase stuff online was a big convoluted process in in the early days whereas now it's just so quick and easy to you know to actually purchase stuff um cryptocurrency is going through the same growing pains um but they'll, they'll figure it out yeah, definitely. I would be dreaming here, but I think a problem or sort of a thing most of uh, teenagers or people under 18 have is that they want to acquire money in a sense where they want an internship or they want to do some investing because, oh, I want to get rich. And I think a really cool thing that might happen in the future with crypto is the fact that now children or people under 18 can acquire a digital wallet rather than having to sign contracts at a bank for a bank account. So I think. That's, that's definitely a direction where uh, cryptocurrency can go in terms of reaching a wider range of age groups. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then that's got benefits for computer science students to uh, you know, start creating their own little apps and projects on the side to start 
you know, you, you don't have to wait until you're at university to start generating an income. You, you can, there are people out there who are, who are desperate for software to so, solve all sorts of needs, um, many of which w- would be within reach of a, of a high school student with a good grounding in computer science. Yeah, and I think, like, for example, if there was a sort of currency for people under 18, let's say I want to currently buy a start a startup. I need to buy a domain, I need to get hosting. All of that requires credit card, which most people under 18 don't have. What if they have a digital wallet where they can transfer those funds into these services? Then it just makes the whole process uh, much more easier and could spiral to new things. Yeah, I would agree. Because I think a lot of people are also restricted by their parents as well at times. Especially, you know, and I think your parents would also get a bit annoyed if you keep asking them, obviously, for their credit card details. So I think a digital wallet would be I mean, I would use it, obviously, yeah. yeah. I, I would be into it. Yeah, um, I feel like this episode is sort of getting long now, so maybe we'll end with, do you have any podcasts, books, or movie recommendations for um, people interested in technology? Uh, podcasts, let's see. I've, <laughs> I've got a few. <laughs> um, maybe I should just give you the list to stick on the, uh, in the show notes. Yeah, show notes. That's a very <laughs> podcast-specific term. Um, so I know you, you listen to Indie Hackers because that's, uh, that's where that got added to my list from. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you listen to Lex Freeman. Uh, he, talks, he talks about AI. That is um, one of my favorite podcasts. So he, he kind of gets a little political with some of his talks, uh, yeah. podcast episodes, but the mm-hmm. AI stuff is definitely worth a, a good listen to. He, he, he really knows his AI. Yeah, it seems like most people in the tech and Silicon Valley do Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And just... <laughs> yes. Uh, so what other tech podcasts do I have here? I've got uh, Core Cursive, uh, Coding Stories, um, although they haven't published anything since the start of this new year. So, um, Software Engineering Radio, um, Software Engineering Daily, that, yeah. Um, and if I was to jump on the uh, diversity and equity bandwagon, uh, a couple that I would highly recommend are Woman Tech Charge, um, which is, uh, is sponsored by uh, The Standard in the UK, and Tech Setters, which um, is um, a, uh, sponsored by Code with Clossy. Um, and run by a couple of um, uh, women computer scientists who fairly recently graduated. Uh, any other really big tech ones? Um, I, I, I'm sure I've got others here. Like I said, I'll, I'll, I'll give you. I'll give yeah, you a list. Well, we'll put that in the show notes. And yeah, where can the audience find you? Do you have a website, a YouTube channel, or resources online? All of the above. Pbaumgarten.com, that's P-B-A-U-M-G-A-R-T-E-N. And that's also my Twitter handle, and that's also my YouTube channel. Um, And pretty well most of my social media handles are all the same thing. (laughs) So Um, if you have any questions, you know, we're always open to doing a part two. So if you have any questions for Mr. Baumgarten, just email us at hey at recallos.com. Yeah, part two would be uh, would be exciting. Most definitely, we should arrange a part two.
But anyways, um, yeah, the one that we should end with, do you have any insights of the week or sort of things, last, last things you want to tell the audience to do? Um, apart from subscribing to Apart from uh, subscribe, like, and smash that notification bell. <laughs> um, insights, I, I should have thought about this one a little more in, in advance. Uh, the, probably the the main thing I would say to certainly to, to my own students is don't worry about imposter syndrome. You know, it's it's a thing that is is very real in the computer science industry, and it happens at university, and even when you you know you graduate and you and you get a job. Um, but it's people judging their own programming ability against what they see as the finished product of what someone else has produced you know so you're looking at at or you're comparing what you have struggled with over several nights and many hours to produce and you see someone else in the class and look at their amazing piece of code and think oh my god i'm just not worthy you know i, I can't compete um i'm no good but yeah it it's just you know it it's a self-confidence thing, and it's not just unique to computer science. But, yeah, there, there are students who, whose ability is better than they give themselves credit for. Um, and so I would just suggest, look, you learn by doing um, in, in this field. So have a go, find a project, and just dig into it and refuse to quit until you manage to solve it and, and, and make what you were wanting to make. You know, you might spend many hours online searching Stack Overflow and, and running through YouTube tutorials, but you, you can, you know, the level of satisfaction you'll get once you eventually solve it and, and, and get it to work at the end of it will far outweigh all the hours of pain and anguish um, that you get a lot. Um, you know, to produce it. Um, but you will go through the anguish. Um, but, but persevere and, you know, there is light at the end of the, of the tunnel. So um, more, more students are capable of computer science than, than they think. Also, one more thing that we would like to do in every episode is the, do you have any want to recommend us to interview in the future? Oh, uh, limited to people you can do in person or? Any mm. virtual would also be fine. Oh, this one I really should have thought about in advance. Um, I don't think we added this onto the document. I don't know. I mean, yeah. I mean, because yeah. mm. I mean, I'm, I'm actually thinking that I'm going to do some, some interviews. I'm, I'm going to track down some of my former students and, Ooh, yeah. and get them to speak about their experiences at university and getting started mm -hmm. in tech. Um, so I'm, I'm not going to handball that one off to you. <laughs> um, <laughs> But yeah, I mean, I would, yeah, find, I mean, I, there are other teachers here at Shatin. I'd be interested to know more about their backgrounds. Um, but I'd also be interested to hear from people in industry here in Hong Kong and, and um, you know, their experiences with tech and, and um, you know, how they got there and what challenges they've had to face and, and deal with to get where they are. Um, so if you if you can find uh, if you can track down a couple of startup 
uh, founders to interview, then, um, then that would be great. Yeah, in see. fact, I'm, I'm really hoping that I could get my internship boss who built uh, an ed tech startup in Hong Kong to, on the podcast soon, which would be an interesting conversation. Well, I think that's it. That should be it. So thank you again for agreeing to be part of our podcast. I know it's probably a big hassle for you to... No, uh, my, my pleasure, gentlemen. Anytime. And that's it. Thank you for listening. Thank you. Thank you. Please be sure to share it with friends or family. Also, be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or subscribe to us on Spotify. You can also send us an email at hey at recallos.com. See you in the next episode.